These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast. This is the show in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then put all I've learned into a hopefully entertaining story. This is episode 223. And on this episode, I talk about an actor with over 20 years experience of both the stage and the screen, as well as a director of the stage that decided to go into filmmaking. He wrote and directed three films in the 1960s, and unfortunately, all three are considered some of the worst films ever made. Yes, today I tell you the very incomplete story of a man who came from a small town in Oklahoma and tried to make it as an actor in Hollywood. His name was Coleman Francis. Many of you know that I've been interested in, and some say obsessed with, filmmaker Coleman Francis. There are many reasons why I'm curious about the man. There are so many questions I'd like to have the answers to, but frankly, I probably never will. While there's been other questionable filmmakers, such as Harold P. Warren with Manos, The Hands of Fate, or Don Barton with The Zot, there is a difference. Coleman had years of experience on the stage and in film, but you'd hardly know it while watching the films that he made. This is the tale of a young, handsome man with a love of acting who traveled to Hollywood from a small town in Oklahoma to make it on the stage and the big screen. And in some ways, he got there, or he was close. But then there was the unfortunate last years of his life. But we'll get to that in a minute. Coleman Chambers Francis was born on January 24, 1919, to William and Cynthia Ann Francis. He was the youngest of eight kids. There was a 23-year age difference between Coleman and his oldest sibling, Ernest, who was born in 1886. The family was originally from Texas, then they moved to Arizona. I have been unable to find any information about their days in either Texas or Arizona, but they eventually settled in Greer County, Oklahoma. And that's where our story really begins. He lived in the small town of Magnum or Hester, Oklahoma. I don't know the relationship between those two towns, but stories vary between the two. Anyway, it was such a small community that the local paper, the Magnum Daily Star, often wrote about the day-to-day activities of some of its residents. The first mention of Coleman was from a small bit on December 30th, 1932 that read, Mr. Coleman Francis visited Sunday with Charlie Miller of City View. In 1933, there was one that read, Howard Francis of Blair is visiting with Coleman Francis. And in 1934, we find that Coleman Francis and Willie Mae Waller are the latest to join the ranks suffering from measles. Coleman went to City View High School. He was the secretary of a sophomore class, and a fellow student, Dan Landis, was the song leader. I only mention that because Dan and Francis seem to have been good friends. 
There are bits that read, Dan Landis and Coleman Francis attended the ball game between Rocky and Warren at Warren's Sunday afternoon. In 1936, Coleman, now a high school junior, appeared in the play The Glow Lights of San Ray, a three-act comedy. This might have been the start of his acting career. A large number of this route attended the play presented by the juniors at the City View High School House Wednesday night. The play was a three-act comedy, The Glow Lights of San Ray, and was considered very good by all who attended. In an interview in 1949, Coleman mentioned that he was also in a play called The Mystery of Marvel Meadows while a junior. And it was while performing in this play he knew what his life would be. A year later, Coleman was in a school play called Full of Youth, a comedy. It was the story of how a group of clever young people outwit a gang of crooks scheming to cheat a motherly woman out of her property. It appears that in 1939, there was an automobile collision that Coleman was involved in. At 9 o'clock in the morning of October 31st, 1939, Coleman and his friend Dan were in a car that was involved in an accident that overturned both automobiles. Dan Landis suffered cuts on his leg, but Coleman was not injured. I assume that Coleman graduated high school, and as soon as he was out of school, he left Texas to join the Monroe Hopkins Stock Company. The group toured around the Southwest in something called the Cherry Phosphate Belt. To earn money, the cats would sell perfume called To Eat Dom Amour between acts. You could buy a bottle for a quarter or two bottles for 35 cents. We knew we had to learn our parts, Coleman once said, or we didn't eat. We ate hamburgers and it was a great life. After three years of touring, he thought it was time to move on, so he started playing in the Dallas Little Theater and then ended up in California where he joined the Pasadena Playhouse in Los Angeles. It must have been tough during those years as he began to advertise himself in the Pasadena Post with small personal ads that read, Young Man 21 Needs Job, No Trade. Please call Coleman Francis, SY6-2030. The young man's dreams of being on the stage was put on hold for three years. It was 1941, and the United States entered the Second World War. He was drafted into the Army in February of 1941. Before he left to do his duty, he was able to return to Magnum to visit his parents. I thought it was good to read that not only did Coleman visit his parents, but they also came and visited him while in boot camp. Mom and Dad visiting their young baby before he leaves for war, perhaps never to return. He trained at Fort Stills in California before being sent to war. Private Coleman Francis served in the Medical Corps in the Pacific Theaters as part of the 49th Field Artillery Battalion. But the war didn't keep the young man off the stage. In 1943, he was stationed in Honolulu, and there, the U.S. Army Special Service put on a play called Love Rides the Rails, and Coleman played a minor part as Fred Wheelwright, an honest engineer. Once his three-year service was over, Coleman returned to California to pick up where he left off. He joined the Ben Bard Players, a company or acting school that boasted such people as Alan Ladd and Jack Carson. And he must have been an opinionated young man, as he wrote the Pasadena Independent newspaper at least twice in a column named What People Think. 
The first was to complain about the rise of prices at the Rose Bowl, and the second was to say that President Truman should drop the Office of Price Administration, whatever that was. And sometime between 1945 and 1946, he tried his luck in New York City. Well, I've had no luck in discovering what he did in New York. I know that he met a young actress named Barbara Frieda Schwartz from Brooklyn. The 27-year-old Coleman married the 26-year-old Barbara on August 14, 1946 in Los Angeles. The young actors didn't waste time. The Magnum Daily Star reported, Mrs. Coleman Francis and son Ronald Coleman, New York City, arrived here Saturday night for an extended visit with Mrs. Francis's mother-in-law, Mrs. S.A. Francis. They will be joined in September by Mr. Francis and then depart for Southern California to establish a home. Francis has already acted in several motion pictures in New York. Now, what these motion pictures are, I don't know. I don't have any records of any films until the following year. Anyway, Coleman and Barbara had two boys, Ronald and Alan. In 1948, Coleman made his first known film appearance, and that was in Blondie's Reward part of the Blondie and Dagwood series, starring Penny Singleton and Arthur Lake. Coleman played an office worker and has no lines. He just sort of smiles as Dagwood talks. And for the next few years, most of his film roles were just that, extra uncredited work in such films as The Tattooed Stranger in 1950 and The Leadville Gunslinger and The Girl in White, both in 1952. Coleman's real work at the time was on the stage. In 1948, he appeared in the Ben Bard production of Joan of Lorraine and a Merritt Stone-directed play, A Bell for Adano, both at the Geller Theater. In 1949, he returned home to Oklahoma for a visit, and while there, he found time to be in a biblical play called The Light Eternal. The local lad took time out to do a short interview in a local paper in an article called Actor Learns in Stock Company, where he talked about his early acting experiences. Over the next few years, Coleman played on the stage and found small acting roles in film. And I tend to think he was becoming sort of a local hero in Greer County, Oklahoma. You know, a local boy who made good in Hollywood. And I'm sure his local legend was made bigger when his name appeared in Luella Parsons' syndicated Hollywood gossip newspaper column. Luella wrote in 1952... Although my street address is no secret to most in Hollywood, nor to sightseers who pass by map in hand, one young newcomer to pictures has a unique reason for knowing it. His name is Coleman Francis, who won the John Golden Award in New York a few years ago and is starting his movie career. He knows my house because he used to be a delivery boy for iMagnons and remembers delivering some dresses in a hurry to my door. His success is just wonderful. I have to say I looked up this John Golden Award and I can't find any information about it. Also in 1952, he attempted to start his own production company. In an article in Citizens News, it read, Casting underway for new musical melodrama. A new production company headed by B. Fox and Coleman Francis is now casting actors, singers, and dancers for a musical melodrama to be presented soon. Call HE0653 Cinema Theater, 1122 Northwestern Ave. 
Coleman produced the play Love Rides the Rails, the same play he did in the Army. A review in the Citizens News ended with, The play, produced by Coleman Francis, was not a complete failure, as one must remember that most plays have to smooth themselves out before becoming successful. That wasn't quite a ringing endorsement, was it? In 1952, he was in the play at the Hollywood Playhouse called Man from Nowhere. Willie Williams of the Citizen News wrote, Outstanding in the cast are Moody Blanchard as the tobacco-chewing husband and Coleman Francis as the father who achieves regeneration after bringing much suffering to all concern. And there was a picture of Coleman acting on the stage that appeared in the paper. In 1953, Coleman took time off from his busy schedule to direct a play, In Bed We Forget, for the Van Nuys High School. Coleman was part of a production of Tobacco Road at the Civic Playhouse in 1954, which starred John Carradine. Fans of Coleman know that Carradine would appear in Coleman Francis's film Red Zone Cuba years later. I read an interview with Coleman which he stated that he directed Carradine on the stage in a production of Tobacco Road, but I'm not sure when or if this was that production. Also in 1954, Coleman was in a low-budget Peter Graves film, Killers from Space. He plays the guy at the end answering the phone at the power plant, and I believe he's the guy who gets punched by Peter Graves. Back in his hometown, Coleman continued to appear in the paper. The Greer County News ran a story, Francis now a film actor. It mentions his appearance in The Girl in White, Scarlet Angel, and Fighter Squadron. I have to look up Fighter Squadron because it doesn't appear on his IMDb. There's also a mention of a few TV appearances in shows like Martin Kane and Detective Mark Saber. Again, none of these appear on IMDb, so I might need to do some more research. That was a busy year because he also directed a play called Footsteps in the Night. But perhaps the greatest thrill of Coleman's young acting career happened in 1955. The amazing Criswell, who had become famous for appearing in Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space, had a syndicated column called Criswell Predicts. In January 1955, he wrote, Coleman Francis, your next film will be that of Elmer Gantry, based on the famed novel by Sinclair Lewis. Unfortunately, Criz, I can prove that that didn't happen. But he did have a role in a major Hollywood color film that year. Francis was the delivery man in This Island Earth. Morning. Morning. Sign here. Thank you. Okay, he just had one line, but it was something. He was also in two episodes of the TV series Commander Cody as a security guard and had his first of four appearances in Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. He actually had pretty major roles in those episodes of Sergeant Preston, each time playing a different character. In 1956, he was on the stage in the Ruth Gordon written play called Years Ago. Willie Williams of the Citizen News wrote, Father, Coleman Francis, is a strong character, a former Marine who runs his home like a taunt ship. Francis does admirably in the role. And again, he had his picture in the paper. For the next few years, he continued to be on the stage, acting in small parts in film and TV, including three appearances in Jack Webb's Dragnet. There was one film in 1957 called Stakeout on Dope Street. Coleman plays a detective, and he has no lines. 
But this was a big deal because he actually was credited in the opening titles, something that hadn't happened before. Unfortunately, they misspelled his name, leaving off the E in Coleman. In a production of Inherit the Wind, Coleman was praised for his acting in which he played William Jennings Bryan. That was in 1959, the same year he directed a play called A Hat Full of Rain, as well as appearing in the film T-Bird Gang. How would you like to go to jail for 10 years for armed robbery? For what? All I have to do is let this report go through and I can fix it so that lawyer can't get you out. Legend has it that producer of the film, Roger Corman, felt the film came out so bad he had his name removed from the credits. But for Coleman, he had a pretty major part as Captain R.M. Perel. Not only is it perhaps his largest part in film until Red Zone Cuba, but spoiler, he gets to shoot the bad guy at the end. The Greer County fascination with Coleman continued. In the article, Francis Advances in Theater, he talks of directing John Carradine in Tobacco Road. I was scared to death while Carradine was on stage, he confessed. I kept asking myself, what right do I have to direct the play when a master of the art like Carradine is performing? He also had a speaking role in the 1960 Glenn Ford film Cimarron. <laughs> is there anything special you'd like to do or see here in Washington, Mr. Cravat? I'd be more than happy to have my office take care of the whole thing. And this is why I get so confused when Francis made his next move into writing and directing movies. He had a lot of experience in both low-budget and big-budget filmmaking, yet his next career move was baffling. It was about this time that Coleman's career changed course. I wonder if it had something to do with his age. In his early days, he was a handsome young man, but as time went on, age caught up with him, and he no longer had the looks that would work for leading roles. He began to think about writing and directing an independent film, but he needed an idea. According to an article by Dan Steele in Modern Monster Magazine from 1966, the 40-year-old actor of television, film, and theater was watching TV one evening. On the tube was a film of atomic testing in Nevada. He gazed at the mushroom cloud rising up over the Nevada desert and yelled, That's it! The Beast of Yucca Flats! Now I'm not going to review the film here. It's in the public domain and all over the internet if you want to see it. There's also the delightful Mystery Science Theater 3000 version that's worth a watch. I will only say that B-movie historian Bob Burns said of the film, it's probably the most nothing film that I've seen of all the horror films I've ever seen. The first mention I found of the film was from an article in the Valley Times on December 27, 1960. Valley residents cast in picture. Six San Fernando Valley residents have been cast in leading and feature roles on Beast of Yucca Flats, an independent film currently being filmed under the direction of writer-director Coleman Francis. The film was originally titled The Violent Son and was most likely conceived in the late 50s. How much of the film was scripted? Lee Rosneider, a cameraman on the film, said, Coleman was amazingly well-prepared for somebody who wasn't prepared. Tynus Mode, an actor in Yucca Flats, wrote, We had a small crew and practically no money, but we kept shooting. I don't think we ever had a script because we couldn't afford to have one typed. 
Producer on the film was Anthony Cordoza, Tony to his friends. Tony worked on the Ed Wood film Night of the Ghouls. Soon Coleman gave Tony a call. He called me from nowhere, from out of the blue, Anthony said. I don't know where he got my number. I never did find out. But he called me and said, I understand you know Tor Johnson. Can I get him for a movie? Tony said of Coleman, Coley as he called him, basically he was a nice person. People said he drank, but I never saw him drink a drop, not even a beer in all our years together. He liked aspirins and Coca-Cola. He said it gave him a bit of a lift, and then he laughed. Tony says that he raised all the money for Beast. Filming was done on the weekends for almost a year in 1959. The camera was about the only equipment they had. No reflectors, lights, or sound equipment. The lack of sound let Francis free to direct while the camera was rolling. Lee Strosnider said of Coleman, It was easy to work with him because he knew exactly what he wanted and he didn't ask for anything unusual. He said that they would just drive around until Coleman found an area he liked, then they would just get out of the car and start filming. The part of the wife and the two children were played by Coleman's now ex-wife, Barbara, and their two kids, Ronald and Alan. Coleman played a couple small parts, the old man at the gas station and the man who buys the newspaper. The oddest part about this film was probably the dialogue. Now, it's common among low-budget films to shoot without sound, then add the dialogue in post, having the actors match their dialogue to the mouths on the screen. In fact, I think people would be surprised by how many films, even today, are done just that way. But Coleman didn't want to deal with the lip-sync problem, so he managed to film the actors in a way that their faces were not shown on the screen while they were talking. Sometimes he would show another actor, or sometimes the heads would be cut off the top of the frame, that type of thing. There was a small article in the Greer County News that read, Francis directs Hollywood movie. Coleman Francis, formerly of Magnum, directed a movie, The Beast of Yokel Flats, released recently in Hollywood. He also appeared in Squad Car, a television series. Francis is the brother of T.Y. Francis Magnum. And yes, they actually wrote Yokel Flats. Coleman followed up Yucca Flats with the Skydivers. And in that film, he actually started using sound while filming. That was in 1963, and probably the closest he ever came to a complete film. Again, Barbara and the kids appeared in minor roles. It was after Skydivers that things started to go bad for Coleman. By the time of his last directorial effort, Night Train to Mundo Fini, also known as Red Zone Cuba, he seemed to have little contact with his family. During the production, he and producer Tony Cardoza had a falling out, and it would be the last time they worked together. Cardoza would go on to produce the very successful Hellcats a couple of years later. Sadly, very little is known about Coleman from 1966 to his death in 1973. It seems that he was living on the street and apparently developed a drinking problem, although food didn't seem to be an issue as he gained a lot of weight. Occasionally, one of his friends would give him a small acting role to help him out, like Ray Dennis Deckler. One day, he had just finished filming his film Body Fever when he saw Coleman living on the street. He gave Coleman a few bucks and asked him to show up the next day to shoot a role for his film. 
even though it was already done. To Steckler's surprise, Coleman showed up clean-shaven and in a new Hawaiian shirt. They filmed a quick scene or two for his film. Steckler gave him a couple roles, as well as Russ Meyer, who worked with Coleman back in 1965 in the film Motor Psycho. Meyer hired Coleman as rotund drunk in his 1970s Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Also in 1970, he had a larger part in the softcore porn movie The Dirtiest Game. That would be the last acting role for Coleman Francis. What happened to Coleman over the next three years is a bit of a sad mystery. It appears he was living on the street, getting bigger, drinking a lot, estranged from his wife and kids, yet hoping someday he would be able to make another film. The only thing I found about Coleman's later years was from an interview with Anthony Cordoza with film historian Tom Weaver. The last time I saw him, Cordoza said, he was about Tor's weight. After being only like 200 pounds, he went up to about 350. He was on a park bench with an overcoat, and he looked like he was gone, three sheets to the wind. I don't know what happened to him. I was driving by and saw him on the bench, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I felt sorry for him, but at the same time, you know, you got to take care of yourself and your family. Tom asked about Coleman's death, and he said, Coleman Francis' body was found in the back of a station wagon at the Vine Street Ranch Market. There was a plastic bag over his head and a tube going into his mouth or around his throat. I don't know if he committed suicide or... I have no idea. I never looked it up because we were on the outs at the time. Francis Coleman died in California on January 15, 1973 at the age of 53. He is interned at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. A little bit before I go. First of all, I apologize for missing the last show. There's a lot going on at the Kelly household. I had a story I was working on and then realized I wasn't going to finish it in time. And rather than try to rush something, I figured, well, I'll just have to admit to myself, I can't do one this time. So Coleman Francis, I've been researching him for years, but there's still a lot more I'd like to know. But unless I can travel to Oklahoma or Los Angeles, I think my research is in a bit of a standstill. That's where you listeners can help out. If you live near Greer County, Oklahoma, or are in Los Angeles and you want to do me a salad, see what you can find. I'd love to have more information on Coleman from the years 66 to 73. I'm also hoping to find a, an official police report of his death or a newspaper article. I looked through a bunch of Los Angeles newspapers from the days before and after his death and I could find nothing reported, so I don't know what's going on there. One reason I'm doing this is because, well, you know, a director who was at one time thought of being the worst director, Edward D. Wood Jr., has had books written about him and a biopic made about him. There's been articles everywhere and it seems every detail of his life is known, but everybody seems to be ignoring Coleman Francis. And I purposely didn't review any of his films. Just go on the internet. There's a lot of people who review his films and talk about the man in very cruel terms. Anyway, how about the ending credits?
you've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You know, it takes money to do this show, so if you can help me out, you can donate to my Patreon account. That would help the show keep going. You can find a link to this at my Coffee with Jeff website. But if you can't afford to do that, repost the show on social media and tell your friends about it. I would be forever grateful. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. And you're encouraged to send me story ideas. I just received a good one from Nancy Fry. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Again, you can find a link to this at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care. I'll be back in two weeks with something unique. Coffee Bye. With Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. One coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Yeah.